Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our May 28th, 2009 edition of the show. It's 5.04 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get things fully underway here, a couple quick reminders. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's myspace.com slash out the rabbit hole. In the 1990s, researcher Rick Strassman conducted government-sanctioned experiments where human volunteers were given DMT, one of the most powerful and bizarre hallucinogens known. The data, the data gathered from this study and its implications for our understanding of consciousness and spirituality are profound. Strassman's thoughts and those of other researchers are found in the recent book, Inner Paths to Outer Space, Journeys to Alien Worlds Through Psychedelics and Other Spiritual Technologies. Dr. Sp- uh, Dr. Strassman is our special guest today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Strassman. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, I uh, read uh, several years back uh, the first book you did after you did the DMT work, the uh, DMT, the Spirit Molecule, and found it utterly fascinating and was um, quite pleased to find this more recent book that you have uh, put together with other uh, researchers and uh, really like to get into that today. So can you tell us first a little about your um, academic background and how your uh, groundbreaking DMT study came about? Well, uh, sure. Um, in uh, terms of colleges, I went to Pomona and Stanford University. Um, you know, I, I started off at Pomona College, transferred to Stanford in, as a junior. Um, then I went to medical school back in New York at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Um, then trained in psychiatry at UC Davis, and then took a fellowship in, in clinical psychopharmacology research at UC San Diego. Um, and then after a short stint back at UC Davis, I joined the faculty at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Um, and I started off doing some research with the pineal gland. Uh, I was interested in the biological basis of spirituality. And uh, all of the information that I had been reading about over the years pointed towards the pineal gland as a potential source of um, spiritual experience from a energetic and a biological point of view. Um, and at the time, there wasn't that much known about melatonin, which is the main pineal hormone. Um, so I embarked on a two-, three-year study of the, of, of the role of melatonin in humans. Um, it didn't turn out to be especially psychoactive, and in the meantime, I had learned about DMT and then changed careers about, well, after I completed the melatonin work, I, I decided to start working with DMT instead of, you know, going on further uh, with the pineal melatonin work. Um, and uh, so the DMT work was the first such research in uh, the U.S. in over 20 years, so I really needed to cross all my T's and, and, and you know, dot all, all of my I's with respect um, to putting together a protocol that the government wouldn't be alarmed at um, and would give me approval to do. Um, So I chose DMT because it's naturally occurring. It's a compound that's, you know, made in all of our bodies at all 
at all times. Um, I do speculate in the book that the pineal make D- makes DMT, but <clears throat> um, you know, but that uh, still remains conjectural at this point. But it is known that the lung makes a lot of DMT, um, and it gets into the brain um, either if it's made you know naturally or uh, if it's ingested externally. Um, so one of the reasons I study DMT is because it's naturally occurring, and I was interested in the biological basis of naturally occurring um, spiritual experiences. Um, it was also an obscure drug, so I didn't think it would garner as much attention as, for example, if I began such work with LSD. Um, it's also quite short-acting, um, maybe 20, 30 minutes or so, um, and I was thinking that because the studies were going to occur in a hospital, it would be a pretty stressful environment, and if people had a bad time, the experience would be over you know, relatively quickly. Um, yeah, um, so we studied only experienced, um, experienced users of you know, psychedelics uh, because I was interested in them being able to really carefully describe the states that they were getting into. Um, and also they would be less prone to panic um, because I knew the DMT experience was going to be pretty unusual. Um, so, um, so we gave a, a number of different doses of DMT to about 60 volunteers over the space of around five years. Um, it took me two years, you know, to get to all of my permits in order from 1988 till 1990. And we ran the study from 1990 until 1995. Um, and... Uh, you know, I felt pretty good about, uh, you know, having garnered the information that I was interested in, you know, finding out about by the time the studies were winding down in, in 1995. And uh, so, yeah, maybe we could be a little bit more specific about exactly uh, what DMT is, because I, as I mentioned at the start of the show, it, it's this really uh, powerful and uh, bizarre uh, psychedelic, but as you stated, it, it occurs naturally in the human brain and I think this kind of uh, shocks some people when, when you explain like w- the visions that are had when one gets a dosage of a sufficient level of DMT and yet wow this, this is something that the brain actually produces on its own so uh, the actual the chemical is it N-N-dimethyltryptamine, is that the one we're talking about? Uh, well, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, well, so DMT, right, it's, it uh, stands for N-N-dimethyltryptamine. Yeah, it's quite closely related to the common neurotransmitter in the brain called serotonin. Um, and it's also quite closely related, you know, to the pineal hormone melatonin. Um, it, um, it, it's, in, in uh, terms of the chemical structure, it's the smallest and uh, the simplest of all of the classical psychedelics. And by classical, um, you know, psychedelics, I mean drugs like LSD and mescaline and psilocybin. Um, you know, in, uh, in terms of its molecular weight, it's only slightly larger than a sugar molecule, actually. Um, and it is made in the human body. It's also, you know, been discovered in every mammal um, that's been studied so far, um, in rodents and cattle and rabbits and guinea pigs, all kinds of animals like that. Um, it's also incredibly common in the plant kingdom. Um, there's um, at least hundreds of plants, if not thousands, um, you know, that contain DMT that have been looked at, and there's obviously quite a few plants that haven't been looked at. Um, your listeners, uh, you know, um, 
uh, your listeners might be familiar with an Amazonian brew out there called ayahuasca, um, which is a combination of two plants, um, one of which contains DMT um, and one of which contains a chemical that inhibits the enzymes that break down DMT if it's swallowed. Um, and uh, so in combination uh, with these two plants, you get an orally active DMT preparation. Um, otherwise, if you just uh, in, if if you just uh, swallow DMT, it's inactivated in the gut almost immediately. Um, so you have to prevent the breakdown in the stomach. And um, through some, you know, extremely clever ethnic psychopharmacology, the natives in the Amazon stumbled across or discovered that if you combine these two plants, it allows the DMT to be orally active. Um, so most people, if uh, if uh, they use DMT. <clears throat> On the street, they either smoke it or they snort it. Um, and in my studies, I injected it intravenously. Um, in which case, um, either smoking or injecting it, it starts within just a few heartbeats in, in, in terms of the effects. And they peak within two to five minutes and are over within a half hour, perhaps 45 minutes. Um, if you swallow the DMT in the ayahuasca preparation, though, it starts working in a half in a half hour to an hour, and it's over in around six hours or so. Um, you know, so it is a full-on DMT experience when you drink ayahuasca. It's, you know, just a lot slower and more manageable. So, you know, let's talk about the profound, uh, astonishing visions that uh, uh, the ayahuasca you mentioned, and it's also referred to in some places as places as Yahe, uh, th this has been going on for who knows how long, thousands of years, uh, possibly, th these just astonishing visions that these people have, and the people who have smoked DMT on the street, this has been going on here in America for 30 years or something like that, just, it's mind-boggling, and then when you did the study in the laboratory, in the hospital, you know, this controlled study, and uh, the same thing, these people just having these visions that are just so, uh, just almost ineffable, <laughs> but but we can describe them somewhat, so could you talk a little bit about that, what, what it is that people see? Well, sure. Um, uh, well... Uh, it is a combination of, you know, psychological effects and emotional ones and cognitive ones and perceptual ones, um, auditory, you know, psychological, psychotherapeutic uh, kinds of effects. But in, in terms of the time course anyway, um, uh, it starts working really very quickly within a couple of, you know, heartbeats after the injection uh, starts. And I would complete the injection over the space of about a minute or so. Um, and uh, it, 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 it begins with an incredible rush uh, of inner energy and inner, um, and inner uh, emotion. Um, there's an incredible tension that builds in the body. And in almost everybody, that tension was, you know, so intense um, that nearly everybody experienced their consciousness no longer being able to be contained in the body. Um, so their consciousness entered into some non-corporeal, incor incorporeal state. And uh, then they found themselves in this, uh, in, in, uh, in uh, the DMT worlds, uh, which in most cases um, at least begin extremely colorfully. You know, um, if you keep your eyes open for the first few seconds or so, there's a kaleidoscopic overlay of prismatic, you know, psychedelic day glow kinds of colors that are overlaid in the visual field around the room. 
Um, if you close your eyes, though, um, and I actually started putting, uh, you know, some blindfolds over people, you know, so, um, so they wouldn't open up their eyes and be distracted, um, you know, by the things in the room. Um, so the colors build and build and build. Um, and uh, sometimes the colors would end in kind of a spiritual experience of enlightenment, you know, the white light kind of merging with all encompassing, all powerful and wise kind of intelligence. Um, other times, though, and a lot more commonly than I expected, um, a lot of people encountered these intelligent beings um, that were more or less recognizable. Um, sometimes they looked humanoid or like humans. Other times they looked like insects um, or reptiles or plants. Um, sometimes they look, you know, kind of semi-mechanical. Um, sometimes they look like furniture, cactus, all kinds of unusual things. You know, but the hallmark um, of their experiences was that these was that these beings were conscious of the volunteer entering into their space, um, sometimes expecting them, you know, sometimes happily, sometimes aggressively. And uh, there was this communication, this correspondence, this exchange of information, examination um, that occurred between the volunteer and these beings in the DMT state. Um, so that was quite unexpected. Um, I had been proposing that DMT, because it's naturally occurring, you know, could be the mediator of spiritual experiences, like enlightenment experiences, near-death states, um, out-of-body states, those kinds of things. Um, so I was expecting a, a lot more typical reports of those kinds of events and phenomena rather than these contact uh you know, reports of, you know, beings and my volunteers interacting with each other. It, it, yeah, it's fascinating that these beings seem to almost, it's as if they have an autonomous reality and it's you're just meeting them somehow. And that the, um, and there's this other aspect that you kind of touched on that it's, it's as if what we think of as normal everyday reality is just kind of, replaced and, and it's just like there's this other world right next door and you're able to sort of jump over is that correct well um yeah well it completely uh it completely replaces this reality and and, and it isn't even next door it's kind of like um interwoven uh streaming through this reality uh, you know um in terms of my own training um i'm you know psychoanalytically trained you know i had a freudian analysis and you know kind of classic understanding of the mind um and also i entered in into my research uh studies with a uh, with a fairly extensive zen buddhist background as well um, and, you know, clearly I was able to think and, you know, discuss things uh, with respect to the pharmacology of consciousness and brain function. Um, you know, but all of those models, um, they all, you know, kind of proposed that the experiences that people were having were, uh, were generated from within, um, that they were internally generated phenomena, that they didn't really reflect an external, autonomous, freestanding reality. Um, and uh, so in the beginning of my studies, when people came out of the DMT trance and, 
you know, they were, you know, stunned and awestruck and, you know, baffled and that they wanted to, you know, discuss with me some, you know, theoretical model for understanding what it was they had just undergone. Every time I tried to interpret what they were experiencing as if it was, you know, something else other than what they were experiencing, um, like it was a brain chemistry phenomena, it was the projection of the mind, samsara, it was, you know, psychoanalytic repressed impulses being brought to the fore. Um, every time I, or, or even as a dream, even if I, you know, in, in, interpreted their experiences a dream, um, they all rebelled and they all clammed up and they all said, you know, it's not a dream, that's not a hallucination, it is real, it's, you know, it, it's even more real than real. Um, you know, so I was uh, kind of um, kind of cornered in a way. I, with respect to my own training, uh, you know, kind of bumping up against the phenomena that my volunteers were coming back reporting. You know, so after a certain point, I just kind of gave up and I engaged in what I called a, a, a you know thought experiment. Um, uh, and I started to treat people, and I, and I did start to treat people's experiences as if they were real. Um, you know, so that kind of eased up, you know, um, uh, uh, the pressure on on uh, on my end to come up with a new, you know, model that I was completely un unprepared to come up with. Um, and it also made the volunteers more comfortable, you know, to, uh, to fully describe what it was. Um, that they were undergoing. So, in other words, just kind of go with this thought experiment that this was uh, some sort of other reality that they were able to experience and, and work with it in, with that sort of model in mind. Yeah, you know, kind of like they were kind of dipping into the state as opposed to creating it. Uh, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, one of the volunteers put it quite, uh, um, qu uh, quite succinctly by talking about it as if... Um, Every time he got into the DM, every time he entered into the DM, you know, the DMT state, it was as if it it was as if you know he was catching up with what had been going on in his absence. Wow, that that's just utterly fascinating. Uh, this is out the rabbit hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson. We're speaking today with Dr. Rick Strassman, and we're talking about uh, his book, Inner Paths to Outer Space. He's co-author of that, uh, subtitled Journeys to Alien Worlds Through Psychedelics and Other Spiritual Technologies, and his earlier uh, book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, based on his work with that most um, amazing uh, uh Substance. So, uh, yeah, the um, you talked about the, these uh, interactions with beings, and and some of these beings that people uh, interacted with were sort of in, insectoid or reptilian, and um, you know, it makes me think of the classical alien abduction experience that may or may not uh, be uh, have to do with DMT. Uh, but you know, what has always struck me about that uh, classical alien abduction experience is that so many people reporting it seem truthful and mentally stable in other words they appear to be reporting something quote real however the lack of evidential artifacts or non-involved corroborative witnesses brings forth the notion that quote real may have more ambiguity to it than most of us are comfortable with so you know um, what you know this work you did with the DMT how did it make you feel about the uh, 
you know, classical alien contact experience? Well, uh, you know, um, when I started off my studies, um, I, um, I wasn't especially familiar with or even interested in um, any of the alien abduction literature. Um, I didn't know much about it. And uh, my studies took place in the early 1990s, um, you know, before a lot of the more popular books have come out, like um, like Whitley Stryber's work and John Mack's work. Um, you know, but after the study was over and I started reviewing all of my all all of my bedside notes, um, I realized that I had to learn more about the abduction experience. Um, so the two authors that I focused on were John Mack and Whitley Stryber. Um, um, you know, John Mack was a psychiatrist at Harvard who did uh, quite a bit of work with 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 uh, individuals that had undergone an abduction experience, and uh, his descriptions of what happens when these people undergo that kind of an event are really incredibly comparable to what my. Uh, uh, um, to what my DMT volunteers reported, um, you know, for example, um, the sound of the crinkling, crunching, you know, cellophane kind of sound that occurs in the beginning, uh, the feeling of inner pressure building up until their consciousness, you know, left their bodies, um, you know, the dynamics between the volunteer or or in 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 not this case the abductee um, with the object of their perception you know these entities these beings um, you know that they were extremely intelligent they weren't especially emotional um, there was one in charge oftentimes um, you know there was an interaction um, experimentation on the on, on the person you know all of that was incredibly closely corresponding with what our DMT, um, you, you know, uh, uh, you know, volunteers were also reporting. Um, so, um, so a few months after the DMT book first came out, I was on Whitley Stryber's show, and uh, he was quite correct in pointing out the differences between the classical abduction story and those from my DMT volunteers. Uh, the main ones were that, um, you know, the reports of the typical, you know, kind of gray, you know, figure wasn't especially common in my volunteers. Um, and and also that there weren't any artifacts, you know, left in, in uh, the person, as you mentioned. Um, and uh, so in the course of, of our conversation that night, um, we started batting around uh, the idea of a spectrum of encounters, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, some being uh, purely consciousness, um, you know, to consciousness, which I think are explicable within the context of, uh, you know, natural release of DMT or, you know, somebody getting a large dose of DMT. And on the other end of the spectrum would would be the pure, you know, physical to physical kind of contact, um, you know, with the artifacts and the burn marks and the implants and things like that. Um, and, you know, am I you know, can't really comment, you know, much on, you know, that end of the spectrum. But uh, I think in terms of the consciousness-to-consciousness consciousness, um, aspect of the contact experience, uh, you know, there's a certain intuitive, oh, I guess, you know, resonance, uh, you know, that feels good about speculating along those lines. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, Terrence McKenna described it as uh, the whole alien uh, contact experience is kind of like this idea complex, and, and the spectrum that you and Whitley Schrieber talked about seemed to kind of tie in with that, that it's, it's just this idea complex and that sometimes it's just more of a, on a level of just pure consciousness and sometimes it kind of pushes over into the physical realm and sometimes it's somewhere in between and uh, it's, uh, but you know, DMT, it, now you've speculated and others have as well that the people who are having the, the spontaneous alien abduction experiences may somehow be having their endogenous DMT activated in some way yeah, well, that's a going theory. Uh, you know, there isn't any evidence, you know, uh, quite yet. But I think, um, you know, that would be a pretty interesting study to do. It wouldn't be especially hard. You, you know, there's a couple of experiments, you know, that one could conceive of along those lines. You know, one would be to give DMT to, you know, somebody that's had a natural experience of being abducted and compare them. Um, and uh, the other, which would be, you know, kind of more difficult, is to measure DMT levels in somebody undergoing a spontaneous abduction experience. Yeah, those would be some great experiments. Hopefully you or somebody will be able to uh, carry those out. Uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson. We're speaking today with Dr. Rick Strassman, talking about his amazing work. And uh, he did the, uh, the DMT studies back in the 1990s at the, it was the University of New Mexico. Right. Yeah. And uh, do you have a, a website you want to give out or anything like that? Yeah, it's rickstrassman.com. It's easy enough. Okay, and Strassman is S-T-R-A-S-S-M-A-N. Right. rickstrassman.com. And uh, your earlier book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. And the more recent book that you have written with uh, some other very fascinating authors, this is Inner Paths to Outer Space, Journeys to Alien Worlds Through Psychedelics and Other Spiritual Technologies. And, uh, yeah, uh, how, did, how did this book come about? How did you uh, get all of these very fascinating people together to, to do this? Oh, well, actually, the book was not my idea. Um, I was contacted by the second author, uh, um, who's got an incredibly difficult to pronounce <laughs> Polish name, which I, will, you know, which I won't even try to mangle. But... Yeah, uh, um, uh, um, I had gotten a call from him a couple of years ago. Um, he's an oncology researcher, works for a big drug company, um, and he's also um, a um, and he's also quite keen on uh, on the realm of you know science fiction. Uh, I mean, he's written a couple of science fiction books, and he's illustrated um, a. Um, a um, a number of other authors, you know, science fiction books as well. And um, upon reading my DMT book, he was quite intrigued, you know, by the similarity in, in uh, the subject matter, you know, uh, between what um, the DMT volunteers were reporting and the stuff of, you know, science, you know, fiction, um, you know, material. And uh, so, um, so he was uh, extremely interested in getting uh, the sci-fi community up to speed on uh, the psychedelic work, especially our DMT work. Um, and um, so he asked me if I would be interested in, 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 in collaborating, um, and I agreed. And uh, so then I asked Luis Eduardo Luna, um, who's a Colombian anthropologist who has an incredible uh, amount of experience 
in uh, in uh, the world of ayahuasca, mm -hmm. um, and I was uh, thinking it would be uh, you know fun to include him. Um, so then Luis said, Duardo asked if we would include a Hungarian psychiatrist friend and collaborator of his, whose name is Eddie Frexa. Um, so, uh, so, uh, so the four of us got together. Um, you know, uh, so, um, so, uh, so the main co-author, um, who is in the science fiction world, contributed a number of chapters, uh, kind of talking about the overlap. You know. Uh, between um, the material within uh, the psychedelic realm and its overlap with the science and you know fiction material, um, I kind of rehashed you know the DMT work you know from a perspective of around ten years down the road, and also I um, and I also wrote a chapter on getting ready you know for the journey, all of the inner work that's necessary. Um, you know, Dr. Luna wrote about um, you know the ayahuasca work. Um, and you know some of the you know contact experiences and uh, you know the best way to understand them and interact with them. And uh, Dr. Frexa wrote about uh, some of the quantum psychology and you know new physics ideas that, uh, that could possibly be you know be brought to bear on understanding the phenomena. Yeah, it's a it's a really great collection. I, I love the way uh, this all weaves together. And we also have to mention the artwork and uh, just. Uh, uh, astonishing artwork that uh, the, you have about I think 24 different uh, full color pages and uh, these some some of these are by uh, uh, the authors are the Polish man you mentioned I'll, I'll spell his name W O J T O W I C Z that's his last name but yeah and, and but this uh, artwork is just it, it, if anybody who's ever you know delved into the psychedelic realm at all and see some of this artwork you kind of know oh okay yeah that that's where that's from but also some of it brings forth the notion that you just touched on is that uh something really fascinating about psychedelics especially uh the uh, tryptamines and the mushrooms and dmt is that there is this um sci-fi element to it and and i don't know if that's always been part of that reality, and when people started tripping, whenever humans started doing this, started seeing things like spaceships and aliens, or if we doing this now and have seen a lot of sci-fi movies and somehow that seemed to uh, go with this kind of reality and we layered that on, how, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I, you know, um, I suppose that's, you know, kind of my view of the phenomena um, at this point is, you know, that these are, you know, uh, um, that these are energies um, and that they've got to take, you know, some kind of clothing to be visible. Um, and uh, I think th uh, that the clothing, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, tends to, you know, kind of, Clothes, or I'm um, in wrap, or you know, I'm um, enveloped um, th on these energies or these forces. You know, take on uh, you know contemporary social psychological form. Um, you know, but uh, you know, but despite that, you know, there weren't that. You know, in in uh, our in in our studies anyway. Um, you know, there weren't a you know predominance of you know hyper you know technical kinds of, you know, visual um, imagery. You know, there were some, but I would, you know, kind of surmise that the majority 
we're more um, within the realm of, you know, the natural world, like animals and plants and insects and those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. If you look at, uh, you know, some of the ayahuasca, you know, drawings and the art that comes out of, uh, you know, the Amazon from these, you know, kind of preliterate, you know, societies, is, um, you know, there are, you know, drawings of flying saucers and spaceships mm-hmm. and, you know, some of the ayahuasca art. Um, you know, so it's an interesting kind of, you know, it's an interesting kind of, you know, um, I guess interchange or, you know, commerce in images that's taking place nowadays, um, you know, between the jungle societies and our, you know, and our, you know, kind of, uh, you know, hyper-technological society. Yeah, it would be interesting to know if you saw art, ayahuasca artwork that was done maybe a hundred years ago. Right. If they, if any of that included things that looked like uh, flying saucers, that would be really astonishing uh, to me, and, and uh, indicating that that is something that existed on its own before we had the sort of flying saucer craze that started here in in the 1950s. The 50s, yeah. Well, you know, one place that you know might be good to look at is a, is a is one of Graham Hancock's books that came out a couple of years ago called Supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got well, it's you know primarily about cave art, and uh, you know from the Paleolithic uh, you know times, and uh, he's got quite a few examples and. Uh, he proposes, you know, the naturally occurring or, you know, uh, you know, naturally consumed, you know, psychedelics, you know, um, um, uh, um, um, uh, that those, you know, could be um, involved in the production of the images which are, you know, represented in that cave art. Um, and I can't remember um, offhand if 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 um you know there are examples of of uh flying saucers and those kinds of images in Graham's book but it'd be interesting you know to look through that again with that in mind yeah yeah i, I hadn't actually i had him on the show about a year and a half ago to talk about that book and I, I for some reason we didn't get into that but uh you know he he talks about as uh well McKenna did as well about the notion that um human consciousness uh, the explosion of human consciousness that from a more uh, primal state among early humans uh, was because of the ingestion of certain psychedelic compounds namely mushrooms what are your thoughts on that well uh, you know it's a great theory and you know um, if well one of the common uh, experiences that people um, undergo on a, you know, on a large dose of a psychedelic drug is, is being able, is being able to, um, uh, um, to see sounds. And uh, so Terrence's um, idea kind of revolves around, um, you know, that when uh, the proto-humans out there on the African savanna um, stumbled upon psychedelic mushrooms, that they were able to uh, to see the sounds that uh, um, um, that either they were making themselves or that were occurring from within the natural world, and uh, so that stimulated the development of language in a means or in a in a manner that otherwise would have been impossible, and uh, so he speculates that that 
uh, you know, really sped up the evolution of the human of of you know human consciousness and of the human brain. Um, I don't, you know, um, uh, to be honest, um, I don't know if there are any you know data along those lines, either refuting or you know supporting you know uh, um, uh, that idea. But um, it's a great idea. It's quite fascinating, <laughs> and I I think it, it you know it it uh, would be worth studying. Yeah, I think some of these things are, are not studied so much by mainstream scientists. It's just because it it's so it's so bizarre. I mean, not that it's it's laughable bizarre, but it's just it, I think it sort of freaks out some people. Just DMT and in general, there's this um, you know when you think about uh, that, it, it, it's so profound what it can do, and uh, that it's this naturally. Uh, produced a compound in the human brain, you know, and what's it doing there? And uh, it's, to me, it's this big question is why isn't something so astonishing, you know, being studied even more? Yeah, well, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a very strange thing, um, you know, that, you know, more people aren't really talking about DMT, uh, like all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it it is. It's the strangest thing you can imagine. Oh man, it's you know coursing around in our bloodstream and in our you know cerebral spinal fluid as we speak. Um, you know, so uh, I think the kinds of questions that could be asked about the nature of reality, the nature of spirituality, the nature of you know communication with other species that contain DMT like plants and animals you know it 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 could be like you know some kind of an esperanto language that uh, um, allows um any organism you know that contains it to communicate with any other organism that contains it in that state um you know the nature of reality especially uh, you know um an an interesting aspect of DMT is that it's actively transported in, into the brain in an energy requiring process and uh, there's very few compounds that the brain actually expends energy to get into its confines you know one of them is you know sugar and uh, you know some amino acids that the brain isn't able you know to make itself and you know so, um, so DMT is, is is also one of those compounds um, you know so it's almost as if DMT is required for normal brain function uh, you know which is a very strange idea um, you know, kind of like, you know, DMT is some kind of reality thermostat. Um, mm-hmm. If you've got enough, everything is, you know, copacetic. If you have too much, you know, um, you know then, you know, then things um, start becoming very strange. And if uh, there isn't enough, you know, then perhaps, uh, you know, that could be, um, you know, part of the reason, um, let's say, that depressed, you know, people, um, if it, you know, turns out that their DMT levels are low, um, you know that they view things in sort of a flat, gray, one-dimensional kind of way. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's really uh, uh, well. I, I think if people really started to think about DMT and really study it carefully, yeah, it would just be perhaps a little too much for the common man or common woman to really kind of get a grip on. Well, but, well it's but, sort of, yeah. You know, but 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 you know. Uh, Still, though, um, if, you know, that's what's going on, I think it's worth, you know, knowing that it's going on. Yeah, and so I would say, you know, being that our, our brain chemistry and our sensory organs are always filtering input, is it not correct to say that we are always hallucinating anyway? 
Well, you know, um, it. I, well, yeah, I suppose it depends on what you mean, you know, by hallucinate. Um, is it not real or is it slightly real? Is there completely real? Um, and, you know, and also you'd have to start thinking about, you know, what difference it really makes um, if this entire, you know, kind of level of um, of reality is, is a hallucination. You know, w- w- would that, you know, kind of modify our behavior or the way we treat each other or the natural world um, or those kinds of things? Um, you know, so, yeah, it, it obviously opens up a huge epistemological can of worms that uh, I don't think we've even begun to, you know, kind of scratch the surface of. Well, as some mystics have said, it's, uh, you know, whether it's real or not, it's kind of the game we've somehow chosen to play. We're in this world. We, we, there are certain rules and, uh, of this game, and we, we make the best of it, and certain elements uh, uh, that just aren't sort of, underivable things like love and compassion and we just they don't really need to be examined they just are well yeah it kind of you know goes straight to the heart of what you think about as uh, you know as spirituality i suppose too um you know you know kind of like uh you know what is the reason um you know that things are uh, um, are designed this way. It's uh, um, it's almost as if it's an invitation or or a doorway or a you know pathway to the ultimate you know source of being. Um, you know you know uh, uh, um, you know the ultimate you know source of existence and of you know kind of everyday reality. Um, you know so I I. Yes. Um, so I uh, think to that extent, it um, would stimulate people to start thinking about ultimate causes and uh, ultimate purposes. Those those uh, those kinds of issues, um, if things indeed are designed in that way, you know, like um, you know, why would things be designed that way? Um, and uh, you know, who could have designed it that way? And uh, obviously. Um, you know, it can kind of, you know, tap into the whole issue of intelligent design. But, um, you know, there is a design, obviously. You know, whether it's intelligent or not or evidence of a, a, a you know, of an external designer, obviously, you know, can be debated. But uh, I think it's worth, you know, looking at, you know, science and at, you know, the natural world, including the existence of endogenous hallucinogens to really um, understand the basis of reality. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Rick Strassman, and we're talking about his amazing work he has done with uh, psychedelics and other spiritual technologies. Um, specifically his work with DMT and a book that he uh, recently was co-author of, uh, Inner Paths to Outer Space, Journeys to Alien Worlds Through Psychedelics and Other Spiritual Technologies. And I, I really want to say that it w- was quite a service, the, the one chapter you put in the book about um, people uh, preparing to take a psychedelic voyage and uh, before uh, I say any more on that, I would say that we are not encouraging here that anybody do anything illegal, but uh, these 
you know, people do uh, sometimes decide they want to do something like this. And there are places, as you mentioned in the book, where you can do some of these things in a legal setting, for instance, doing ayahuasca in uh, certain uh, countries in South America. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's a number of retreat centers in Peru and a couple in Brazil. And also there's a couple of ayahuasca-using Brazilian churches, um, you know, that have established, you know, um, you know, a legal presence in uh, the U.S. Um, and uh, you know, you can participate in their cer- in in their ceremonies legally too. Yeah, and and so yes, th- this whole thing that you put into the book about uh, how to prepare for a trip, and it's uh, I-, I can speak from personal experience of, of uh, one time doing a uh, fairly high dose. Uh, mushroom trip without really taking all the proper precautions and it turned out to be a a pretty uh, rough ride Uh, i got a lot out of it it was very powerful but it it was uh, you know it was hard to deal with for some time because i i I should it was a situation where i should have had a sitter and i didn't and so i really appreciate that you talk about that in the book and how important that is and just to prepare yourself psychologically if you're going to do anything like this yeah, yeah, I, you know, yeah, it's really quite important, you know, to, um, you know, to prepare, you know, beforehand, and also, you know, um, for, you know, for the actual, you know, time of ingestion, you know, and I speak about, you know, kind of solo trips and group trips and you know, supervised trips and non-supervised experiences, you know, indoors, outdoors, small groups, large groups, um, you know, psychotherapeutic intent, spiritual intent, artistic, you know, creative intent. Um, yeah, um, so I'm, I, I am quite, you know, proud of that, you know, chapter. I think I covered, you know, um, a fair number of, uh, you know, the bases and, you know, the contingencies that, you know, somebody's going to in, 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 in encounter, um, you know, when they are doing um, anything like this. Uh, yeah, and re- related to that, um, you know, Again, uh, to kind of mention something that Terrence McKenna had put out there, was that he once remarked about how uh, strange it was in the early days that many scientists studying psychedelics had never themselves taken one. It it seems to me uh, that you could not have even properly designed, uh, let alone, you know, properly carried out your DMT study without having experience with psychedelic voyaging. Is that right? Oh, well, you know, um, I'm asked that question a lot, and I never really answer it, uh, you know, because <laughs> if, if, if I tell people yes, I'll be accused of being a zealot, and if, I'm, and, if I answer, and if I answer that question with a no, then, you know, people tell me um, that I don't know what I'm talking about. But, you know, uh, you have to read between the lines of the book. You know, that's all I can say. Yeah, I know. It's a fair enough answer. But, yeah, I, I was sort of making an assumption there, and I think my assumption is, is pretty good. But we'll leave it at that. But, uh, yeah, and, and I can understand that and, and coming from the world you're coming from and uh, the way that you were able to coordinate all of the uh, – government uh, uh, sanctions you needed and everything to get that study done it was really uh, i'm sure that that was an enormous amount of work and uh, i can understand how you need to um um guard yourself in that way yeah yeah kind of you know you know tim leary uh, you know was a great you know person in you know some ways and in other ways he was you know kind of a menace and uh 
you, you, well, you kind of learn what to do and you kind of learn what to, you know, not to do, you know, from the people that preceded you. And, you know, one of the things that Tim did, which I think wasn't such a good idea, is he, he you know, took his own drugs and he talked about his own experiences all the time. So I think, you know, that the government started being concerned, you know, that the experimenters themselves were kind of losing control over, you know, the situation. Um, and I felt it was important, you know, not to repeat that. Yeah, I, quite uh, quite understandable. Uh, so uh, can you tell us anything about what's coming up for you, what you'll be working on? Well, yeah, um, just a few weeks ago, I, you know, signed a contract for my next book. It's going to be on uh, the prophetic experience as described in uh, the Old Testament. It's, you know, it can be kind of a, a stretch because, you know, it's going to be, you know, dealing with, you know, terms and, you know, concepts that, you know, a, a lot of people in uh, the psychedelic community aren't all that comfortable with. Um, you know, but the argument I'm going to be making is is that the is that the uh, is that the experience, um, you know, the prophetic experience uh, in uh, the Old Testament is you know kind of the Western you know paradigm of you know the full psychedelic experience. Um, you know, kind of like in um, an enlightenment experience is um, within you know the Eastern uh, you know religious. Uh, um, the orientation, um, like within Hinduism and Buddhism, um, you know, because we aren't, you know, Eastern people as a rule anyway, and, you know, neither are we jungle dwellers, you know, for us to be able to get, you know, comfortably, you know, situated within a, a, a within a shamanic worldview, you know, so I'm, I think it's important, you know, to westernize the spiritual aspect of the psychedelic experience. And, um, you know, I had spent all those years as a Zen Buddhist and, you know, learned a lot about Zen, but it just didn't really, you know, feel like it resonated with my soul and my culture and my genes and my bones and all those kinds of things, you know, my own psychology and, you know, the Western psychology in particular. Um, yes, um, you know, so I'm... Uh, you know, kind of scouring the Old Testament, um, I kind of learned biblical. I, I kind of relearned biblical Hebrew, and um, you know, I'm you know going to be making a comparison, you know, between the DMT state and the prophetic state, and um, you know, kind of speculating about what that relationship uh, you know could mean. Um, and I also started a nonprofit foundation a year or two ago called the Cottonwood Research Foundation, and ultimately. Uh, if it can, you know, with money and time and staff, become a university of consciousness uh, where we look at the, you know, psychedelic experience, you know, from all possible points of view, you know, from the pharmacological, uh, the anthropological, the, you know, brain chemistry, you know, the brain sciences, um, you know, the religious uh, studies aspect, the shamanic aspects, um, you know, the cultural, you know, social implications of, of, of the psychedelic state. You know, so, you know, so we would be doing research there, and also, you know, we'd be doing academic work there as well. It's, you know, just kind of an idea right now. It's just one person, um, you know, that is me. Um, you know, but we're starting a, um, um, you know, uh, it's, it's a, you know, fiscal sponsor f uh, for the DMT, uh, um, you know, documentary uh, um, that's in the works right now. You know, so people can, you know, donate to the documentary um, as, a, as a, you know, tax-free uh, donation. Um, and, uh, and they so can do that where? 
Uh, it's called it's called cottonwoodresearch.org. Okay. Yeah, um, that's the name of uh, you know the website, um, and also we're starting to digitize a a a uh, huge a, a huge number of you know scientific papers, um, and and uh, and um, so that's going to be like an online library through Cottonwood as well, of you know articles that have to do with the psychedelic experience. Okay, cottonwoodresearch.org. Right. And okay, and your website rickstrassman.com. Right. Okay, and we'll uh, be expecting a book from you maybe in about a year on the prophetic experience. Yeah, yeah, I have to get the book into the publisher by, you know, February next year. So it'll be out probably within, you know, 4 to 6 months from there. You know, so next summer probably is a is a conservative estimate. Okay, well, I'll look forward to reading that one and uh this has been a wonderful fascinating conversation having you here today. I really uh thank you so much for your time. Well, you're welcome. Very much. Okay, this is Dr. Rick Strassman, and uh, the book is uh, that he co-wrote, recently published, Inner Paths to Outer Space, Journeys to Alien Worlds Through Psychedelics and Other Spiritual Technologies. He also wrote DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and is the person who has done the uh, amazing research on uh, that subject, DMT. And I uh, hope to talk to you again sometime, Dr. Strassman. Okay. Well, yeah, you know, let's be in touch after the next book comes out. That'd be fun to talk about with you. Okay. Thank you very much. You have a great day. Okay. Take care. Bye now. All right. Yes. Rick Strassman, all those things I just mentioned, and, uh, yeah, Inner Paths to Outer Space, Journeys to Alien Worlds Through Psychedelics and Other Spiritual Technologies, a book... uh, co-written with a few other authors excellent uh, reading dmt the spirit molecule as well and uh let's see what else do i need to tell you about i should probably remind you one more time that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the kuci staff or management or the uc board of regents and if you want to give me some feedback on the show I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's myspace.com slash out the rabbit hole. And let's see. Kyle's ready to go. I think I saw him wandering around the studio here a few minutes ago. But uh, he'll be coming up in just about uh, three or four minutes with Things That Are Square. Great mu- music, as always, here on KUCI. And I'll be with you uh, next week. Don't have a subject uh, lined up right at the moment to tell you about, but it will be something good. I I promise you that. <laughs> and okay, uh, so I'll be talking to you then. I think I'm going to leave you with a little bit of uh, music uh, from an uh, ayahuasca session in South America. I think that's what we have queued up here. This will be uh, really interesting. So Robert Larson saying, I'll be uh, talking to you next week. KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Also on the web at KUCI.org. <laughs>